probably best for you to start in Haggai chapter 2, but be aware of Malachi chapter 3. I'll be reading you some verses from both of those, uh, but you've got time to find them. Don't worry. I know you're... Turn in your Bibles to the table of contents. That might have been a better way to start. Uh, Yeah, go ahead and turn to Haggai chapter 2 and Malachi chapter 3. These two chapters have some very noticeable similarities. Um, Both take a turn. Um, Haggai and Malachi have been talking to uh, the people of God about things that are happening in their present day. But in chapter 2 of Haggai, chapter 3 of Malachi, they, they take a long view. They both take a turn towards the future, which is wrapped up in the hope of the coming Messiah. So I'll read you from Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. Don't worry, we'll get it again later if you're not there yet. Haggai 2, verse 7, the Lord says, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then Haggai 2, verse 9 says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. And then in Malachi chapter 3, which again we'll come to later, so don't don't worry about it too much. In the first verse of Malachi 3, the prophecy is given, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Big things are coming. And these, these prophets, while separated by 60, 70, maybe even 100 years, are both honed in on this hope, God is coming to meet them. And we, as the church, separated from these prophets by nearly 2,500 years, are still seeking to cultivate this same hope. Our God is coming to dwell with his people. And you can consider this your pre-Advent message. The Lord is coming. Let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be given to us so that we can understand spiritual things. We, we are helpless without your guidance. Um, we pray that, that you would be present to us, that you would be made present to us in your word, uh, that as we, as we seek the truth in these prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, we would be seeking the one whose name is truth. Jesus, show up. Come to your people. Um, come and be with us. Dwell with your people just as you've promised. We ask for your, your anointing on our ears and our hearts that we'd receive what the Spirit would give to the church this morning. Amen. So, uh, a little uh, reminder, as we're studying two prophets at the same time, you have two uh, men of God, Haggai and Malachi, preaching to two audiences, and there's there's uh, parallels, many parallels, between the messages. But their audiences are, are very different from one another. Of course, it, it's Israel both times. Um, but it's different generations of Israel. And when you get to Haggai chapter 2, this is uh, spoken after the second temple was built, or at least during the later stages of construction of the second temple that you read about in like the book of Ezra. It's spoken during a time when people were obeying. They heard the prophecy of, of, of Haggai chapter 1, which said, get your act together, and surprise, they did, which is great and unusual, right? They did. So chapter 2 comes when people are are obeying. They had repented of their laziness, of their selfishness. They're seeking the Lord. They're doing his will. And for these people, the message of Haggai, that the glory is coming, that the glory of this temple will exceed the temple of Solomon. There's a big promise. There's a promise that peace is coming to this place. All of this 
It's a really encouraging message of hope. And then uh, to, to these people's grandkids, Malachi shows up, and he's talking to a different culture. In Malachi, Israel had yet to turn that corner of repentance. Uh, the, the prophet is still bringing correction to a nation that isn't yet convinced of its sin or convinced they need to change. And to them, the prophet is even more clear than Haggai. The Lord is coming. The message, again, is pretty much the same. The Lord is coming. Glory is coming. And the person who is walking in righteousness and obedience is pursuing the Lord and doing his work can take heart in the prophetic message. The Lord is coming. And the backslidden Christian, along with the unbelievers and all those who undervalue the things of God, who have become distracted by their own desires and lusts, they need to hear the same prophetic message. The Lord is coming. But it kind of has a different flavor, doesn't it? So let's start with Haggai. We'll get his uh, message in the first nine verses of Haggai chapter 2. We'll stay there, and then we'll flip over to Malachi in a little bit. I'll read you from Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Just pause there for a second. There's an event recorded for us in Ezra chapter 3. It's all my Wednesday, Thursday Bible study people get. Congratulations to you guys. Um, when the, the foundation of the second temple was, was laid, the old men and women who had been around before the exile, these are people in their, in their 80s probably at least, they remembered Solomon's temple, and they weep to see this new temple begun. They, they weep even while others are celebrating the new work God was doing. Haggai addresses these people and acknowledges their doubts about the work in the new temple. It's not going to seem like much, is it? Even though they were building the temple again and walking in obedience, there, there were these naysayers who kept belittling the good work of God. And Haggai is here to encourage the workers who may feel like their work is insignificant because it will never measure up to the expectations of others or, or the high standards maybe of the past if we look at through you know, a rose-colored rearview mirror. And, and he's saying, you, you remember that. That happened. Those people weeping. Now, that was some 15 years ago before. But that tone stayed with some of the people saying, this is never going to be as good as Solomon's temple. So why even bother? And so he says to the leaders of the people in that culture, verse 4, says, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. We think of Paul saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the spirit of God remains among you, it says even since Egypt, yeah, a lot's happened since Egypt. And God's essentially saying, I haven't left you. I never left you. So if I'm with you, who can be against you? If the spirit of God remains among you now, do you really need to be mourning about the good old days? Or even worse, using the good old days as an excuse not to make these days good? Didn't the Spirit of God leave Solomon's temple? That's what Ezekiel says. But now the Lord's saying, but the Spirit never left you. Don't be discouraged by nostalgia. There's some wisdom in uh, Ecclesiastes 7.10 that is really fitting here. In Ecclesiastes 7.10 it says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. What you ought to say instead, and what Haggai says in these next verses is that if the future is all about Christ, then the future is great. 
it's better than you can imagine. Verse 6, so for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Your God is coming to you, uh, and he's going to shake things up. That's actually the word that's used, shaking. Shaking carries the idea of judgment usually, an earthquake, a lot of things fall down. Um, but not everything. A good shaking is like fisting. You, you fist things through a mesh, and it separates things according to size, or you fist a flower with a shaking motion to get out the impurities. The judgment would be in preparation of the desire of all nations, like that's Jesus showing up. The shaking is in anticipation of the best thing that could possibly happen. When he says that the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, that's saying a whole lot. Not just because Solomon used a lot of gold in his decorating, but because when Solomon's temple was dedicated, God showed up in smoke and fire. Fire came from heaven to consume the, the offering. Smoke filled the temple. It was amazing. As far as we know, this never happened with the second temple in Ezra's day or Haggai's day. So how do you read Haggai's prophecy? Did it come true? When did the glory of this second best temple exceed that of the former? I'd say it started around in Luke 2. Jesus, at 40 days old, is presented in this temple. An old man there meets him named Simeon, and he blesses God, and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples or all nations, the shaking of all nations, desire of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's Luke 2, 29 through 32. The glory of the latter exceeded that of the former, Simeon said. Israel was not to look back and assume that they had peaked as a nation, that their God, you know, was just behind them. God wasn't just behind them in the past. He was God who was coming to them in the future and who had never left them even since Egypt. Similarly, we are not to develop any sort of mentality that looks back and thinks that the church of Jesus Christ has peaked at some point in history. Even as the world crumbles into chaos and disorder, it is wrong to look wistfully in the rearview mirror and assume that the glory is in the past. No, Jesus is coming back. The, the glory is in the future. The future is bright. It says, and in this place I will give peace. Again, how would this be fulfilled in the second temple? Here's how. Peace between God and man depends on that veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom and Christ has accomplished that. Peace with God was made when that temple veil was torn, responding to the words of Jesus from the cross. It is finished. Now, all that would be in their future, in Haggai's future. They would look forward to these events, and some of them did. But we're reminded of the importance of passing our hopes down onto the next generation because what we see in Malachi is that whatever hope existed in the time of Haggai was pretty well gone and dried up by the time Malachi shows up. Which is why we're using it as kind of a lighthouse in this study for this month, the last verse of Malachi, where God says, I will send Elijah to you who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Because that didn't happen in the previous generation. And these hopes of the coming of Christ weren't passed on. 
the hope that the future is bright because it's full of Jesus. When he says his mercy extends to a thousand generations, uh, we get in this place where we think we're the last generation that God's going to be kind to. And it's like that's just simply not true. We haven't hit a thousand yet. If Christ is ahead of us, the future is bright. So we turn over to Malachi. We're done with Haggai this morning. We'll be back there next week. Let's see how the next generation is encouraged and challenged by the same message, really. The message is, your God is coming for you. That's the message. Malachi chapter 3 begins, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Uh, That should sound some New Testament alarm bells for you, John the Baptist Christmas stuff. You got that? Okay, we'll be there in a second. Now, the word messenger, this is kind of interesting. The word messenger is Malachi. That's what it is. And some have gone so far as to suggest that Malachi wasn't the prophet's name at all. It's just a title. He's a messenger. And that the near fulfillment of these things is you ought to listen to Malachi because he's setting things up for you. But there's, there's a depth of meaning. It becomes clear as you read Malachi 3. There's a depth of meaning that extends beyond Malachi, the prophet himself. We have the New Testament talking about one who prepares the way of the Lord. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last of the old covenant prophets. And in a way... Each of the Old Covenant prophets was a Malachi, a messenger, preparing the way for Christ. All the prophets are messengers. But do you know who else is a messenger? Jesus himself. Sunday school answers only, please. Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Read on. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Think, I think a capital M there is correct. In whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is the messenger of the covenant. Here's another Malachi, not a messenger who prepares, but a messenger who seals a covenant. This is no one other than the one who brought this message. This is the blood of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord is coming. Now that means different things to different people, doesn't it? Haggai prophesied the same thing, and it sounds like such good news. And in Malachi, the same piece of news seems a little bit more like a warning, something scary. Now, as we'll see, there's good news in Malachi too. There's hope. But the hope of of the the cleanliness that's coming is also the promise of a whole lot of scrubbing. Now, look at verse 2. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? He's saying that this morning. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. He's saying the priesthood will be purified. He says, I'm going to clean you up. And the question is, who can endure that kind of cleansing? After all the dirt's washed away, is there anything left? After such a purifying as this, will there be any priesthood, any holiness left standing? The answer is yes. Please note that soap is not meant to destroy garments. That is not the purpose of soap, right? If you have soap that does that, you have bad soap. (laughs) A A refiner's fire is not meant to consume gold and silver. If it was, no one would want to light that fire. The purpose of these agents is to purify, cleanse, and make whole. The scrubbing is aggressive. The soap is caustic, and the fire is hot. But if there's a holy priesthood underneath that scum, the coming of the Lord will reveal it. Again, this is good news. What's promised is a pure 
people of God who dwells with him without veil, with unveiled face, beholding the glory. That's what we're looking forward to. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 16, Paul talks about this. And it's still New Testament stuff, right? I know some of you are tired of the Old Testament after three weeks, so here's some New Testament for you. Okay? It sounds like the Old Testament, though, so watch out. Okay? 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day, capital D, the day, same thing that Malachi's talking about. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's saved. Yeah, it's through fire, and yes, fire's hot, and yes, so it's a scrubbing process, it's, it's hard, there's a lot of dirt. But the end is that he's saved. Now in verse 5, verse 5 is going to tell us about the garbage that gets taken out, the dross that's burned, the stones that are scrubbed, okay? So the prophet's talking to a corrupt priesthood here. He says, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is written in the context of a priesthood, uh, the spiritual leaders of the people, who had just become apathetic about all things worship-related, right? They were offering the blind sheep, the, the lame animals. They were looking at the table of the Lord saying, oh, what a weirdness. They just didn't care about holy things or a holy God. And so they're, they're having their, their sins addressed here. And... Uh, in order to purify the priesthood, the corrupt priests have to be dealt with. So the coming of the Lord is, is, is there to cleanse like soap and purify like fire, will address the stains and impurities of sorcery, adultery, perjury, and these other things. It's somewhat horrifying to consider that God's priests were engaged in these things. Sorcery, that's witchcraft. They were playing with demonic stuff they had no business involving the people of God in. They were adulterers. Remember we talked about that in chapter 2. That was already addressed. The priests were divorcing their wives and getting new ones. Jesus calls that adultery. Perjury, it's lying, but it's more like falsifying documents. It's used four times in the Old Testament, this word. And the other three times it refers to prophesying or swearing falsely by the name of God. This is bearing false witness, using the name of the Lord in vain. Um, I mean, it's breaking a couple commandments in one shot. That's bad. Priests were charged with representing God to the people. That was their job. When they failed in these ways so dramatically, they were guilty of crimes against heaven. Need a lot of soap, need a lot of fire to burn some of this stuff away. Their crimes against earth were pretty significant too, exploiting wage earners. There's laws in, in the Torah about abusing employees, about keeping back wages. Even in the New Testament, James talks about this. He says God cares about this. James also tells us that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows. I think James probably spent a lot of time in Malachi. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They couldn't very well be a light to the nations, showing them the truth of their God, if they are turning away the alien. For Israel, evangelism was always inextricably tied to hospitality. So all these sins were things that God was challenging. They were things he promised to judge. But the bottom line here, and it's the bottom line more often than you might think, is the fear of the Lord. You read that, right? These corrupt priests turned away the alien and exploited widows and orphans and cheated on their wives because they had no fear of God. They had no idea of the holy and each sin will be addressed, each sinner will give an account, each and every anointed priest will be held to the high standard of Leviticus 11, be holy for I am holy. So you revisit that question in verse 2, who can stand? Because that's a high standard. 
it would seem that there would be none who could. Is there even a baby in this bathwater? It seems like it should all just be, you know, thrown out. But verse 6 offers hope in spite of our weakness. Look at verse 6. It says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Again, happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are remembered no more. Paul picks up this idea in 1 Timothy 2.12 and what looks to be like an early hymn or a creed maybe. He writes, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Seems like that's what Malachi is saying to the people in Malachi 3.5. But, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself among the scriptures of Malachi 3.6. In other words, there are promises God has made based on himself that our actions cannot undo. God will save all in Christ. He will. God will save for himself a church, a remnant, a holy priesthood, no matter how many individuals try to screw it up. With a priesthood that is involving itself in such vile practices as are outlined in verse 5 and elsewhere, you'd think God would just say, be done with it, because that's how long our patience lasts. And the reason he does not simply consume them is not primarily because of any willingness on their part to repent, but it is because God's own faithfulness to his own promises, I do not change, he says. Therefore, you are not consumed. He says, my spirit's been with you since the covenant in Egypt. Rather than this being something that should be taken fatalistically or taking it as an invitation to just throw up your hands and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. There's nothing I can do about it. No, this message that Malachi preaches of his unchanging faithfulness was meant to be an invitation to cling to the one whose promises never fail, even if your past seems past helping. Look at verse 7. You bring up Israel's past. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. In other words, you're sinning now. It's nothing new. We've been here before. Did I leave then? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the prophet is this. You guys, Israel, you've always disobeyed. It's kind of your signature move. You've always gone astray. This is a family trait. It's tradition. I know how much you guys like tradition. This whole musical thing and fiddle around the roof and everything. Disobedience. It's like, it's like your national holiday and your favorite sports team rolled into one. But... Because I am God, and I am faithful, and I make promises that I don't intend on breaking. I'm telling you, this is why you're alive today. This is why you're not consumed now, because of my mercy on you. Which means there is an open door before you. Return to me. Repent. Change your ways and come to the one who changes not, whose compassions fail not. A repeated line in last week's sermon uh, was, God's faithfulness to his people produces faithfulness in his people. This faithfulness looks like returning to the God that we have abandoned, who does not abandon us. At the end of verse 7, Malachi anticipates some of the questions. Says, but you say, in what way shall we return? He does a lot of this kind of dialogue where he anticipates the questions and then gives the answer. We'll read all the way to verse 12 here, starting verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vines fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. 
so there's this lack of generosity that was a big problem for Israel. This is something that was an issue addressed by Haggai as well, you'll remember. They, they leave the temple in ruins and spend a lot of money and time fixing their own houses up. And here in Malachi, the sacrifices are offered. They're not the best. The priests can't worship with weariness. And now this is another way that God's people had departed from him. They'd withheld their tithe. Now, a, a tithe is a, a tenth. That's what the word means. It's, it's 10%. And the Jews actually had a lot of different kinds of tithe. But the simplest way to understand the principle is 10% of their income. 10% of what they produced would go to the priests to be stored in the temple storehouse or the nearest Levite city. The money was then used both to support the Levites and to care for the poor. Now remember in Haggai last week how God told the people, the reason you can't hold on to a dollar is because I've taken it from you. I've prevented your success because I need to get your attention on this. But if you, if you get up, you go cut down some trees, you go build a temple, well, I'll reverse this order, you'll be successful. Now, the same problem is facing the people of Malachi a generation later, and a similar deal is being struck. God is saying, if you prioritize me and my house and my worship, if you walk in obedience to me, if you give your best and your first again to me, I will bless you with more than you can even handle. In New Testament speak, God is saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all the rest will be added unto you. Now, is God really talking about money? Well, yes, but no. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it matters, this connection between money and, and, and life and the heart. But God's primary concern, we know, is with the whole person, not their belongings. The heart, not the, the wallet, necessarily. But the heart isn't something isolated from the rest of experience, the rest of existence. How money is used can be a thermometer of how that, that shows the temperature of worship, how people spend their money and how much they give their money. This shows the priorities of their heart and how much they can be trusted with what Jesus calls true riches, which isn't the money. The true riches aren't the money. Luke chapter 16, 11, he says, if, you, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, dollars and cents, who will entrust you the true riches, entrust to you the true riches? In the parables of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, we see that money is a test of the heart. In Malachi, when God is accusing his people of robbing him, when he, what he's doing is revealing to them their own calloused hearts. And by calling them to return to this practice of generous tithing, he's not saying, I need your money. He's saying, I want your heart back. Now, of course, it would have been possible to give and tithe without loving God. We see that in the New Testament, right? But it would not have been possible for them to love God with all their hearts and all their souls and not be generous toward him and not move towards obedience. In the New Testament, Jesus approves of tithing in kind of a weird way and then points out that it's not the main thing. It's possible to give with a bad heart, and of course that's not what God is after. <coughs> Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay, you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, the tithing, without leaving the others undone. In other words, it's fine. Okay, you tithe. That's great. I get it. Good. Keep doing that. But that's not a replacement for justice or mercy or faith. Now, in the New Testament, giving goes beyond the tithe, and Jesus approves of that, too. It's a widow's mite. She was giving way more than 10%. Jesus says she gave all she had. I think that's more than 10%. But the principle in Malachi stands. Generosity begets blessing. Now, in talking about this, you have to realize that there's some hesitation on my part because passages like this are misused in what I call predatory fundraising. 
right? The person tries to get you to give to the ministry by promising that God will bless you. I don't want to do that. I don't need to do that. But I am compelled to tell you that God stands by his word. I'm compelled to tell you that God has a way of dealing with people. And I can attest to his faithfulness, as I'm sure you can as well. And if you seek out the people in your church or out of it who are happy and holy, you will find people who are generous. They'll be the same people. A person who is disciplined in their prayer and their Bible study and in just pursuing a holy life in a holy community, these people will be the people who are also disciplined with their tithing and their giving. And when you find a person who has been consistent in their tithing and giving, if they're willing to talk about it, they will tell you of God's faithfulness. They'll have stories of the windows of heaven being opened and blessings being poured out. Now, as, as God calls you in this study in Malachi and Haggai to prioritize himself, to seek his kingdom first, he may be calling you to tithe. If you've never done it, start. If you're used to and got out of the habit because of laziness or an emergency or whatever, then, then start again. If you've done it forever and you've never missed a paycheck that you haven't tithed, watch out. The Pharisees said the same thing. Don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. If you've been able to consistently tithe throughout your life, that's God's faithfulness to you. Let his faithfulness produce in you faithfulness. Now, I've mentioned the hesitation I have in misusing this kind of passage and reducing generosity to a transaction, you know, buy a blessing, that kind of thing. There's a risk for that. But there's an equal and opposite risk that exists in saying, well, it doesn't make any difference. God does what he, does what he wants no matter how I behave, so it doesn't matter what I do. That bad doctrine is actually where the Jews were coming in that Malachi was talking to. And this, it's summed up in verse 14. They say, it is useless to serve God. Read verses 13 through 15 here. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. I'll paraphrase here. Obedience just isn't worth it. Holiness isn't worth it. Generosity, it's not worth it. There's no benefit to doing the right thing. That bit about being God's mourners, that may be a reference to the Day of Atonement. Uh, that was one day in the Hebrew calendar where uh, a person was to afflict their souls. It's fasting and prayer. It's the time when you take your sin very seriously. Because Israel was not taking the holiness of God seriously, it would have been impossible for them to take sin against a holy God seriously. And when neither holiness nor sin are seen as real, powerful things, then obedience is seen as worthless. Well, we resist the line of thinking that says, if you just sow your seed of faith, God is obligated to bless you financially. Um, we, you know, that sentence would sound better with a southern accent, but I'm not going to try it right now. But you know it would. You know it would. Um, but we, we know that's flawed thinking, right? This, that's flawed. But this error, this other error on the other side of the pendulum swing, it's far worse. To say it's useless to serve God. Obedience is pointless. And while you see the proud blessed and the wicked raised up, you have to know that whatever blessing or benefit they're experiencing is temporary in the extreme and ultimately empty as it, is, is, as it is experienced apart from any closeness to God or favor that might be received from him. 
remember Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Psalm 73 says the same thing. Malachi is preaching the same message. The people in Malachi had lost their perspective. The people in Malachi had convinced themselves that it was better for them to ignore God and to disregard his commandments and withhold tithes and offerings because there's no benefit to obedience. It's just not worth it, which is just the kind of thing a person who is willfully walking in disobedience would want to believe. You better hope it's not worth it. You better hope there's no repercussions here. But it's a lie. And in the light of the coming of the Lord, who gives light to the Gentiles, glory to Israel, when you realize he's coming, and his coming is like soap and fire, cleaning and melting, this faulty line of thinking is going to what it is, an excuse. You may be able to say the master is delaying his coming, but Jesus talked about people like that, didn't he? Once you see the signs of his return and internalize the promise of his return, once a guy like Malachi comes and reminds you that he's coming, he'll be here, and when he comes, you'll mean business. The defenses you put up to excuse your own disobedience start to show their weakness. And evidently, that's what happened with at least some of the people Malachi talked to, and this is the encouraging part. Verse 16, Malachi 3. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. For a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Did you notice this in verse 16, that the ones who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and then the Lord heard them? It doesn't say they spoke to the Lord, or they, sp- they spoke to one another. This isn't prayer, strictly speaking. It was a sort of holy conversation that the Lord eavesdropped in, into, heard it, honored it, and responded to it. You who fear the Lord, find each other, start talking. Your conversations will bring the Lord's response. They write a book of remembrance. Remember, two weeks ago, we started Malachi, and it started with God's word. I have loved you. And, and the people say, oh, yeah? How? And they, they'd forgotten the love of God, but those who fear his name knew that they couldn't afford to forget it again. They needed the book of remembrance. Remember how God has been faithful. In verse 17 and 18, our promise is referring to his cleansing that's coming. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him, then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. When the Lord comes, these ones who remember the love of God, who fear him, they will be spared. They won't be destroyed by that fire. They won't be thrown out of the dirty water after the laundry. They will be cleansed, purified, and made whole. And as priests whose job it is to discern and teach, we will, they will be able to do exactly that, discern between right and righteousness and evil. This chapter ends with a promise of a restoration of a priesthood. Now the Lord has come, and the Lord is coming. The Lord has saved unto himself a holy priesthood. We are told that's us in no uncertain terms. And he has cleansed us of our unrighteousness. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But the Lord is coming. The glory that's coming will exceed the glory of the past. His coming ought to instill in us a desire for purity in our worship and our behavior and our love expressed in giving. We're the temple. We're the priesthood. And God cares enough about your holiness to give you a good scrape. That isn't bad news. That's not a threat. This is good news. God is willing to dwell with his people whose one consistent act is disobedience. God is willing to hold on to you, to be an anchor of your soul behind the veil. He has made promises. 
to love you, to keep you, to bless you, that that's to instill in your fervent desire to hold fast, to cling to Christ, and lean in and lean on the one whose compassion is filling out because all the blessings are in Christ. He's the only access point for the blessings of Christ. When we say the Lord is coming, we know there's a response of examination of cleansing in 1 John. It says all who have this hope cleanse themselves. But it's a task while taken seriously. It's a task that ought to be taken joyfully, knowing that the one who is coming, who is willing to come to you, to meet you, and yes, to scrub you and to apply some heat, this one is the lover of your souls who comes mighty to save who has made a way for your life to be hid with Christ in God. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, We worship you because you're worthy, and we do so because our hearts are full of gratefulness, knowing that you seek out the undeserving and sends them, sends us. And uh, clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. You prepare a table before our enemies, even in your presence. You give us a feast with more than enough. You give us promises that are sure and true. We cling to you, Jesus, for the salvation of our souls and all our hope. Now and ask all things quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise God.